Welcome to the PZNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. And this is our seventh and final episode in the series on health equity in children, supported with funding from the Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant, sponsored by the North Carolina chapter of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. It has been an absolute joy and privilege to research and share my knowledge on these topics with you. Have you seen the ways that culture and society discriminate against people from groups that are on the margins of society? Like people of color, LGBTQ communities, and people with larger bodies, just to name a few. Do you remember how implicit bias creates an unconscious preference towards or away from certain groups of people? like the Hispanic girl with a broken arm who wasn't given appropriate narcotic pain medication because she wasn't screaming. And do you remember how those preferences can play out in microaggressions? As was the case when a pediatric provider refused to write an African-American child a prescription for over-the-counter medications because the mother had fancy nails. Did you see the assumptions made of a gay parent that boxed him into a straight, cisgender, gender-conforming role in his family's life? These seemingly small missteps might appear innocuous, but to the people from groups that encounter bias every day, they are one more straw on the camel's back that make them feel second-class, unseen, and inferior. This whole series has been about bringing awareness to the majority of pediatric nurses and nurse practitioners who are white, cisgender females, just like me so that we can change our practices in simple ways that make us allies to all children on their journey to better health. So far, we've had seven health equity best practices that will help you build meaningful relationships with your patients and their caregivers and eliminate the obstacles that stand in the way of better health. These best practices are proof that change can start with you right now at the bedside without waiting for policymakers and public health officials to tackle the crisis of health inequity. All you have to do is change the way you think and approach your management plans, which I know are already founded on great evidence-based practice. First, let's review the best practices in our series. Number one, approach every patient with a lens of health equity. Two, become a partner in the equity care plan not an authority in healthcare. Three, identify your own biases. Four, use curiosity to confront microaggressions. Five, say your patient's names correctly. Six, use person-first language. And seven, don't assume. If you enjoyed the podcast series, you can help add to the body of knowledge on podcasts and practice. I'm asking listeners to complete a short, anonymous survey for every episode they listen to in order to better understand the impact of listening to a short podcast on health equity. The link is in the show notes or at thepedsnp.com and click take a survey at the top of the homepage. I'll remind you again and give details on how you can win a $15 Amazon gift card at the end of the podcast. But first, let's talk about the most common health disorder in our nation's children mental health problems. Over half of mental health problems start during childhood years, 
Yet delays in diagnosis and treatment mean that kids aren't getting help for upwards of two to four years after initially displaying symptoms. Children from racial or ethnic minority groups are also more likely to receive delayed or poor quality care when compared with their white counterparts. Why is this? The effects of systemic racism have been cumulative by perpetuating situations where mental health problems are more likely to begin. Think about it like this. There are policies and practices that cause communities of color to have disparities, and those disparities make it difficult for them to change their circumstances. For example, redlining selectively restricted people of color from wealthier suburban neighborhoods with better schools and congregated them in economically depressed urban settings. Poor education in these neighborhoods meant that there were fewer chances for well-paying jobs. So people didn't have much money and lived in substandard housing, in food deserts, and neighborhoods that were prone to violence. That's just one interlinked example of many throughout history. So when we know that certain life experiences and environments lead to mental health problems, things like chronic stress, adverse childhood events, or ACEs, violence, poor access to quality education, we can see the ripple effects of systemic racism on mental health because these circumstances are ripe for brewing problems such as anxiety, depression, obesity, hyperactivity and impulsivity, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidality. When 20% of children are affected by mental health disorders, and we know that early intervention can bolster social-emotional skills in a way that leads to resilience and coping, what is taking so long to get kids help? The answer is complex and rooted in social stigma, recognition and mental health literacy, and access to services. First, let's understand stigma and what it does to affected groups. Stigma is the discrediting sentiment that surrounds negative beliefs tied to a stereotype. Let's use an example of the false belief that children who have ADHD are crazy and volatile. These reactions then arise in unaffected people. This is prejudice, like a classmate's parent judging that the child with ADHD just needs structure and discipline. And those reactions get placed on the affected group in a way that leads to negative outcomes. This is discrimination. I don't want my child playing with someone who has that disorder. This kind of implicit bias can also affect the parents of children with mental health problems or developmental disabilities. Self-stigmatization can occur after a person internalizes the negative perceptions about them which can lead to isolation and a cascade of negative quality of life outcomes. On the flip side, the public's perception of people with mental health disorders could result in the person being in denial or refusal to seek treatment for fear of judgment, outing, or social rejection. So even if mental health resources existed in a community, this fear of ostracization may make a parent or child reluctant to get help, And that's a true barrier to fixing the problem. Take, for example, traditional Latina issues that surround willingness to seek mental health treatment, which can be impacted by their language proficiency, beliefs in fatalism, spirituality, and familism. 
which is the belief that problems should stay within the family unit. Another explanation suggests that minority groups have a higher threshold for disruptive behaviors and only seek care once it becomes out of control, which is more likely to be determined by schools or courts, again perpetuated by systemic racism. A systematic review of 62 studies with socially disadvantaged young people found stigma and shame to have an impact on their desire to seek help with mental health care. Other reasons cited were that they wanted to rely on their own support systems. They had a lack of awareness of available services. They had poor motivation for treatment and limited confidence in the provider's ability to actually help them get better. Those are fair because lots of primary care providers feel they lack the training and confidence to screen for and diagnose mental health disorders. And 60% of U.S. counties don't have a mental health provider. So stigma makes it hard to get kids through the mental health care system. Providers struggle to diagnose mental health disorders. And we don't have enough providers to provide services. You're thinking, what am I supposed to do about that? Don't get me wrong. We need primary interventions to focus on mitigating social determinants of health through policy and systems of change. We need research and dissemination of secondary strategies aimed at identifying problems, like validated screening tools and programs. But I told you this podcast was going to be about the things that you could do on an individual level starting today. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry has recommendations for providers on how to individually address barriers to mental health in culturally competent and inclusive ways, which starts with identifying and addressing one's own bias. Have you heard that before? Sounds a lot like our best practice number three, identify your biases. You should also examine for barriers to care for your patients, like insurance, language services, and geography. That sounds a lot like our best practice number one. Look at every patient through a lens of health equity. Do you see how these best practices can help you with every patient once you incorporate them into your daily routines? You can also ask about food security, housing, violence, bullying, and other risk factors for mental health problems that are rooted in social inequities. Recognize that some children might intersect multiple risk factors, such as being an ethnic or racial minority and LGBTQ. So this brings us to our final best practice in our Health Equity in Children series. Number eight, bring mental health into the daylight and your everyday conversations. If stigma, recognition, and access are among the biggest barriers to treatment, then that's where we'll talk about it. Diminish stigma when you talk about mental health with your patients and their families using open, non-judgmental communication, starting in infancy. Bring mental health diagnosis into the daylight by intentionally putting them on your differential diagnosis and make screening a part of your everyday practice. Arm parents with surveillance tools to recognize problems and how to seek help. To provide access in the primary care setting, the AAP advises that you need to be ready to manage mild to moderate cases of anxiety, depression, and ADHD, 
which accounts for nearly 75% of common psychiatric disorders. Create backup procedures to accommodate mental health emergencies in your schedule. Make arrangements for families with health disparities to have dedicated blocks outside of classic clinic times, like nights and weekends, so that they don't have to take time off work to have a healthcare visit. Bolster the child and their family in their protective factors, sometimes referred to as benevolent childhood experiences or counter aces. A child who has one good friend, an adult they can talk to, good neighbors, and or a predictable household routine are all things that we can promote in their collection of protective mechanisms. Just try it. Do it and see what happens. The next time you think about it, but start to shy away because mental health is messy and time-consuming in your day, just talk about it instead. Give it the time of day. Now let's talk about that post-episode survey. Simply go to thepedsnp.com, the link is in the show notes, and click the button that says Take the Health Equity Survey on the homepage. The link will take you to a one-minute survey about the episode you just listened to. Once you submit the anonymous voluntary survey, you'll get a link to the page where you can enter your email to win a $15 Amazon gift card. I won't share your email and it's not for marketing purposes. It's just to pick a winner for the raffle. Whether you enter the raffle or not, thank you for completing the survey and sharing your feedback. Your participation is very important, so please take a moment to complete the survey, then share with a friend, your colleagues, and your classmates. I'd like to thank the diversity, equity, and inclusion experts who generously volunteered their time to serve as consultants and editors for the content in this episode, which was generously supported with funding from North Carolina NapNap's Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant. Follow me on Instagram at the PedsNP podcast. Email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can complete the survey, see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. Mental health deserves your time. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.